Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by JVentures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley and is sponsored by Hillel Stanford, UpWest, and Hippo Insurance. Thank you for joining me on episode 44. We have Alnisa Allgood, the founder of Collaboration for Good. Alnisa is the founder and director of Collaboration for Good, a dual-focused nonprofit working to both change the face of entrepreneurship and grow the capacity of the social sector. We use entrepreneurship, technology, and capacity building to make a social impact. Additionally, as a tech generalist, Alnisa founded Nonprofit Tech in 1998 as a national technology consultancy for nonprofits and public sector organizations. Alnisa Allgood, thank you for joining me on 20 Minute Leaders. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Great. So, so Alnisa, you know, you're one of the most fascinating people that I get to speak to because you're helping so many different nonprofits on so many different sectors, and you have such a unique background coming into this. Uh, but first, I have to ask, your last name is Allgood, and you are, you're helping so many nonprofits, and you're running Collaboration for Good. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> I frequently get asked that, and in some ways, yes, and then in other ways, people say that potentially the name, my name helped shape what I'm doing in the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, okay, so let's, you know, let's just dive into it. Tell me a little bit about the nonprofit world. And, you know, most people have no idea what nonprofits are. So 501c3c's, uh, or is it 501c3? I don't even know myself. It's, <laughs> it's basically almost anything in the 501c category, but most people just think of the 501c3s. Uh, 501c3s are charitable organizations, but there are about 26 classifications of nonprofits. <laughs> okay. So, and and t- so w- what is a nonprofit and how does it differ from a for-profit company? Well, the biggest distinction is basically a nonprofit is pretty much just a corporation, a non-stock corporation that makes a pledge that any profits that it generates goes back into the organization and to help provide for the services that the organization provides. So the primary distinction is really just based around profit. To be perfectly okay. honest, it's like um, for-profits get to pay out their profits, either in stock options or to family members or whatever. Sure. Um, they don't have to retain those profits in internally, and nonprofits basically reinvest profits back into the social good that they're doing. Sure. So, so, so people still get a salary. You still have the same idea. You have a board seat. You have board seats. You have milestones, deadlines. You're running as a legitimate company, but the key difference is then how do you pay off? Do you pay off dividends, or do you, or do you just pull all that money back into the service that the company's providing? Right. Yeah, for the most part. So yeah. So typically speaking, you're running for the most part the same as a typical business with some. Some hindrances, I would say, sure. in that process, more so from what people think a nonprofit is versus what a nonprofit can be in terms of doing that. Um, but generally speaking, it's pretty much just 
a business with a dual bottom line or sometimes triple bottom lines or even more so than that. Like, so the, the primary bottom line for a nonprofit is the social impact or the social services that they're trying to accomplish or make um, in that. Whereas the primary bottom line for most businesses is cash. <laughs> okay. That, 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 that makes a lot of sense. So, so then comes uh, all good into the picture and you're really making an impact on a lot of nonprofits. So what, what do you do there? So with Collaboration for Good, we basically do capacity building programs for nonprofit organizations and the social good sector as a whole. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is, is that we basically find and grow um, social entrepreneurs. So people who hmm. will start either nonprofits, for-profits, or crop cooperatives, but they're all wanting to take on at least a double bottom bottom line. So they want to impact their, do a social impact for their communities that they're targeting, as well as make livable incomes for themselves and their employees. Okay. And, but, and how does that actually come to play? So fine. There's an, so there's an interesting social entrepreneur that, that was trying to get stuff off the ground. How's your, what, what does your relationship with them look like? Uh, so again, our primary relationship looks like, um, we run a social good accelerator. It's just called the social good accelerator. (laughs) Um, and we work with like 25 social enterprises per year, um, with that. And so they can be from zero to about three to five years in terms of development for that. So some people are really just coming in with a a strong idea that we think is viable and that we think would make a difference. Um, And other people have been working at it for three or five years, but haven't gotten much traction um, in that. And so then we help them focus. We help them prioritize what steps they want to do next so that they can start actually seeing it more as a sequence of steps a messy sequence of steps, but still a way forward. Um, and, um, and then we just provide support, community, access to um, resources like consultants, mentors, peer-to-peer um, help and um, things like that. And we're right. hopefully moving to a place where eventually we will also be able to give them um, financial, some types of financial resources as well. So that might so- be... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and how, so, you know, I, I went through some accelerators myself and a lot of my friends who go through startup accelerators, uh, you know, 500 startups, the junction, uh, tech stars, et cetera, et cetera. How does, how do these accelerators differ from the social accelerator? Uh, right. the, 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 the one that you're running because you're, you're not focused on fundraising, right? And, and you're not necessarily focusing on, on a lot of the for-profit ideas, but w- so what do you focus on? Well, we actually, the overlap between regular accelerators is fairly strong. I would say there's something like a 60 to 75% overlap for the main components of it. Basically, discovery of who you want and who fits your, your model for your accelerator. Right. The classwork and things like that that we're doing. I think where we predominantly differ from that is is that um, 
we also have the components of the impact that we want to make. So wage wealth equity is a big issue for yeah. us. So we don't want, um, especially since we're targeting predominantly women and minor um, people of color in in okay. our programs is that we don't want them to end up in the same dire straits as they're running a nonprofit or business that they started <laughs> in. Yep. So we're teaching them about what's being consistent pay to well-paid, right? And, and so we try to teach them about like kind of minimal levels of income that they want to generate, especially if they're women. Um, we're talking about like stuff like you shouldn't be paying yourself less than $75,000 a year um, for that. I mean, and you can do less, but like your rate should at the very least be 75 and you're just paying yourself a percentage of huh. it as opposed to, you know. So, so tell me, so, so why is that? Why is that a recommendation? Why, why do you recommend? Because a lot of other accelerators are telling their founders, you know what? I don't want you to get Maybe you shouldn't take a salary really for the next two years. That shows a vote of confidence. So talk to me a little bit about the $75,000. Yeah, so it's basically because we're focusing on the fact that it's something that all of our participants are going to have to try to achieve in the first place. But we don't, but like a lot of people who are doing social good are used to people telling them that they shouldn't get paid for doing good, right? And yeah, because so, then you feel bad about it. I'm getting paid for doing good. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so a lot of people who work for nonprofits or who start nonprofits end up in situations where they're in sometimes worse financial shape than the people that they're providing services to. The number wow. of people that we know that I know and that we've worked with in nonprofits who have to go to local food banks or personal essential pantries to kind of get them through the rest of the month off the income that they're making is, is relatively high, right? And we're trying to stop that. Um, but also $75,000, I think, is that point where most people can relax a little bit you're not really wealthy at that point, but you're not worried that you might lose everything within two months. Right? Sure, sure. Um, and for women, I think that's even more important because, yep. um, especially if you're a heterosexual woman, one accidental pregnancy and you're raising a child, that can literally just childcare alone can run between fifteen to $20,000 a year. And then wow. you still have a child and you have the health care. Yeah. So that basically just drops a $75,000 salary below 50, sometimes closer back to 35, huh. um, you know, um, thousand dollars there. And that's just something that we don't want to see. What, what's another recommendation that you're, that you're pushing for? Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, so not only like paying themselves well, but also paying the people they employ yeah. well. And so it's about kind of changing the dynamic of what do we consider livable wage and getting out of that argument of minimum wage or I'm doing a dollar above minimum wage, which is still just nothing. Right? Still <laughs> um, minimum wage. Yeah. yeah, it's still pretty much minimum wage. And then in some places like that are slightly more progressive, like Madison, like they're, they'll argue for minimum wage of $15 an hour. But 
the cost of living here is just to make ends meet, you need an income of $35,000 or higher, probably closer to 40. And that's just to make ends meet. That's yep. still putting you in the range that if one crisis happens, you could be out on the street within like 30 days. <laughs> you know, I was in an economics class at Stanford the other day and mm-hmm. the, and I, this really troubling fact, this showing statistic where more than half of Americans, if they face an emergency situation where they have to provide $400 cash, they're not able to do so, right? which I think is, is something to really ponder on. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, and that's for a variety of reasons, but a lot of it is also just because, especially with people who work in the social goods sector, which isn't just entirely nonprofits, but for a lot of them, yeah, they have no cash savings whatsoever. They're definitely still in that mode where if you grew up in poverty, there was like the mode of, are we playing the telephone this month or like the heat this month, right? And a lot of people who work in the social goods sector, that's kind of where they're at continuously. So so, uh, during the day they go and they help others and they help run social good projects, but then at night they have to decide whether they're paying their phone bill or the heater. That's just, uh, that's, that's unbelievable. And I don't think that that's something that people often think about on, from the aspect of the people that are actually running these, these projects. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you even get to this? I, it, it doesn't seem very ordinary that somebody just wakes up and says, yeah, I'm going to run an accelerator for social goods, for social good <laughs> companies. And I'm going to be, and I'm going to help social entrepreneurs and make an impact on the world. So how do you even get there? Well, mine was a bit of a windy path. Um, my first job was with a nonprofit when I was 14 years old. And so I actually come from a history of poverty. Um, uh, we li- I was raised in Warren, Ohio. It was a steel belt town, um, basically. And um, the steel industry died (laughs) Uh, during like that period of time. And so it went from like a pretty middle-class town to a a town that had really great divides in it. And so, I mean, because most people either went into the military or they went into the steel mill um, for it. So um, we went from kind of being middle-class to being um, poor. And then my father died. And then we went to being extremely poor <laughs> um, uh, for that. We were a family of six at that point. And wow. I would assume that my mom was barely making $20,000 a wow. year um, for us. So at 14, I got my first job and it was twofold to help out around the house and um an actual financial way, but also just because my mom used to just dress me really girly and I hated all of the clothes that she would buy me. (laughs) And so I agreed to take on purchasing my own school clothes (laughs) if she let me get a job. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So, um, and I started working with a few nonprofits then, but I think that's when I still really started, um, consolidating my thoughts around community and our responsibility to society. So as a country, as a city, as just an, even a neighborhood, what is your responsibility to the people that are around you? Um, I didn't want to go into the army 
um, but I wasn't opposed to military service. So um, in junior high, I participated in a program that led me to um, a junior Air Force ROTC program. And I basically made a decision that I could still do military service and get a college education, which was kind of looked down upon in our family, like the college education. It was kind of like, you need to go to work as quickly as possible (laughs) and and start making a living for for yourself there. Um, I got the full ride scholarship from the Air Force to do chemical engineering um, at Penn State. And chemical engineering was the Air Force's choice. I was actually more interested in mechanical (laughs) engineering (laughs) at the time, but it was the option that was going to get me the scholarship with a lot less competition. So I was like, fine, I can do chemical engineering. (laughs) Um, Wow. But then when I went to Penn State, I also made sure that I had a second um, degree option, which was called the administration of justice, which is kind of a combination between, um, looking at society and its infrastructure and the, um, criminology and crime and laws and crimes basically. (laughs) And, um, for that. And, um, so I was doing that for most of college and then I came out as a lesbian um, which I should have probably thought of earlier when I basically took over purchasing my own clothes, but I did. <laughs> um, and um, that was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so I did lose my scholarship um, wow. for that. And um, You lost the scholarship. Yes. Said. Yeah, because at that point, the military didn't accept out and so, so at what point in your college career does that happen? That was like the end of the sophomore, beginning of the junior year. So all of a sudden you get a letter and you're saying, listen, uh, never mind, please don't come to the military. By the way, we also want you to pay for the two years that you've done and the two more years that you have in front of you. Uh Yes and no. So that was, is what typically would have happened. But my officers, the officers I worked with really liked me. Um, and I was actually on road on the path to enter the Air Force as like um, a first lieutenant with just being a bar, wow. away, a bar, you know, just being a little bit away from being a captain. Wow. One, they pre-informed me that I was going to lose the scholarship and they submitted multiple letters of recommendation that I, I not have to repay. Wow. um, Okay. Before. So then it just became a matter of, I had to pay for the future years (laughs) of college, which was highly expensive because I was considered still considered out of state. And I was also supporting my mother and my younger brother and wow. um, so that actually what it did is because of the notice change, I became essentially homeless and penalty, penniless for a while, even though I was working full time. Almost all the money that I was working full time for was going back to my mom and my brother and wow. one of my nieces that was living with my mom. And but I don't want to say it was a it wasn't like your typical homelessness. Like it was it was kind of a privileged homelessness, if you could say that. I was on a college campus. There was 
there was, I knew I wasn't going to stay homeless. It was more just about how long would it take me to accumulate the money that I could then live somewhere. What does that practically mean, homeless on a college campus? Well, it means that there's one, like, there's hidden places that you can sleep in on college campuses. I mean, because, like, just think about, like, when you're on a college campus and you're doing an all-nighter at the library, right? People fall asleep there, but you don't actually get to lay down and go to sleep. You you have to, like, pretend that you're studying and you put a book out and you lay your head. So just to get this right, you would go to classes all day, you would work to support your family back at home, and then you would go and find hidden spots at a university so that you can get some rest in order to wake up for classes and work the next day. Yes. <laughs> and how long um, did that last for? Uh, that lasted for about six and six and a half months. Definitely. Six months. Much, yeah. <laughs> a lot longer time than it should have if I wasn't taking care of like my family. Because it basically became, I could take this money, accumulate like, a month of rent and then the current month of rent for a deposit. Um, sure. That, or I can basically keep sending the money to my family and then I'm saving a much large, a much smaller amount, like month, basically. Right. Just- no, 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 of course. No, that's unbelievable. And you know, the, I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing and, and you know, the, the adversity that you, that you went through. And I'm sure that it shines with every social entrepreneur that you get to work with. And I hope that we get to work together on some projects later on as well. And I have to come see this accelerator myself because it just sounds so very cool. I do have to ask before we leave, and I can't believe 20 minutes are almost over. I have so many more questions. (laughs) I have to ask you the last question, which is three words that you would best describe yourself. Um, I would say I'm... I'm fairly resilient, I think, um, across the board. I would say so. Um, Kind of quiet or potentially composed, generally speaking. I try not to let too much anger me unreasonably. Um, I do try to keep a certain amount of anger there if it actually can help propel things forward. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And then... I would say I'm curious, but I would say more people would probably call that querying than curious because my friends hate it. I'm always asking questions about about stuff. And like sometimes they're like, I know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, well, it's not that I don't trust that you know what you're talking about. I'm asking questions so I can figure out how this relates to other things. Right? I love it. I love it. I love it. Alnisa, <laughs> thank you so, so much. Keep on helping people change the world. Keep on changing the world yourself. This is a, such a unique privilege for me to have done this. Mm-hmm. And then I look forward to remaining in touch. Okay, thank you. And thanks for the, the ask and the invite. <laughs> of course. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye.